Welcome back, everyone, to Tech Talk, the officially unofficial Transformers TCG podcast. I'm joined, as always, by Scott of VectorSigma.info. And Scott, it's officially the first episode, the first broadcast of the new year. Are you as excited as I am for 2020? Yes. It's going to be a good year, right? (laughs) Right? Yes. Right? Please, God, let it be better than 2019. Although, on a Transformers front... I feel like you say that all the time. What's that? Like, everyone always says that, like, oh, the last year was so bad. Was it was it really so bad? I mean, let's be honest. Well, I mean, I guess it depends. What I was <laughs> going to go with it is, Transformers-wise, especially Transformers TCG-wise, worked out pretty well. Uh, it's, it was a pretty solid year, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I mean, it's not fair that there really wasn't much the year before, but I would tend to agree. Yeah, I mean, it's only a quarter, really, from 2018. Mm-hmm. So it, there isn't too much to judge it on. This is the first full year, and it's. I was thinking about this earlier as we were talking offline about how we were going to structure the show and how we were going to talk about things and where we were going to focus. And it really does overall feel like the game definitely got its legs under it and took off running on a number of different fronts. Obviously, we're going to focus on the competitive and organized play end, but. On all fronts, it felt like the game really was hitting on all cylinders. Yeah, I would agree. Um, I, I I assume the sales of the other waves were just as good as the sales of Wave 1. Mm-hmm. Um, so I can only assume that it took off in that way as well. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, we've already gotten our teaser, not to get ahead of ourselves, for the next wave, Wave 5. Uh, and obviously, in speaking with Drew and all the various interviews that the Wizards of the Coast team has done. We've gotten little bits here and there, but we'll save that for the end. We're kind of going to take a stroll through 2019. And as always, the focus is how are we learning from these experiences? It's not just enough to look back and, you know, rose colored glasses, even though it's only, does that work for a year ago? I'm not sure, but (laughs) looking back in, at the past year, I don't think it's enough, and Scott, not to put words in your mouth, but I think you'd agree, just to revel in the past year. It, it It's important to use it as a step to get to the next proverbial level to continue growing as a competitive player. Yeah, I think I think the way that we want to approach it is not just like a, a laundry list of what happened, but more mm. of like a how, how it affected later decisions and how it affected... Um, our own thought processes as well as um like i guess i I don't want to i think everything brought us to this step obviously but Mm -hmm. i mean i don't think that that means that it like culminated in something but just that you know from a deck building and from a play perspective i think that each each step in this process opened us up to experiences that i think have led to where we are now and whether it's like you know a, a new strategy that we didn't consider, whether it's a new card type we didn't consider, or what the effect of those were, etc. Right. I think all that just has a has an effect. So I think it's important to to understand what went on, so that you can. I don't want to say not make the, the mistakes, but I guess just be more open minded to why you you went down that path and how right. you can use it going forward. It's important to examine the past to be able to not just predict the future, but build towards the future. And I think that there were a lot of bedrock a lot of cornerstone 
growth areas throughout this year from a game strategy standpoint, a game theory standpoint. And it's not just, oh yeah, these cards are powerful, throw them in a deck. It's understanding the interactions, which we'll we'll get into through as we cover the year. But it's just a greater understanding of how the game functions. And I think reviewing how we hit those ideals, hit those uh, eureka moments sort of thing enables you to try and continue doing that going forward as well. We're going to get more cards. We're going to see new metagames. We're getting the influx of new competitive players. You need to be prepared. Correct. And I, I think we I think, I think, think we can also start to see some of the building blocks from a design standpoint that have now... There's been enough time now throughout the whole year where like the 2018 metagame affected the decisions that they made in building out Wave 4, for example. And I think we can clearly Absolutely. see that was the case. Yeah. So it's important going forward to do the same so that when Wave 5 hits and, and beyond, you'll be ready to hit the ground running knowing, oh, this is where they probably intended to go because of this is what happened in the past. Yes, and there's also, an, just in general, as I said, and not to repeat it yeah. because it's a... Again, it's for lack of a better way to describe it, but just understanding the game better as we talk about the bans that happened over the course of this year and the way certain strategies play out, that I think the community as a whole is just understanding what exactly is the Transformers card game as Wizards of the Coast sees it kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. how they they expect the game to play out. And okay, these are kind of how Drew always put it, that... In Wave 1, they built the box, and then they started pushing the boundaries. But now we're seeing, okay, those were fake boundaries, faux boundaries, mm-hmm. and now we're hitting the real boundaries. Okay, no, that is a, a step beyond what we're willing to accept in the game. Right. <clears throat> Are you cracking yet another Energon edition, Scott? <laughs> no, but I do have two in my car, but no. Um, <laughs> oh, by the way! <laughs> <laughs> no. I'm not sorry. I didn't I did. it was that loud. No, I heard the crinkling, and I'm like, that sounds like a Transformers toy. I'm confident Scott is not opening Dan's Omega Supreme. <laughs> no, it's a uh, it's a priority mail. <laughs> okay, <laughs> that's fair. <laughs> anyway, so to to bring it back on topic, uh, I put a picture up here of our good old friend Optimus because it kind of felt to some extent that he both began and ended the year for us and the game as a whole, because I think at the beginning of 2019, and obviously we all know how 2019 finished, but we'll, we'll get there eventually. At the beginning of 2019, I think the three wide Optimus deck that you had popularized, Scott, kind of really set a significant foundation for both the understanding of the game and I guess the spheres theory is that kind of, the very beginning baby steps. Yeah, because because I played, I played the traditional quote traditional, um, double primes deck for a while, like at packs unplugged and things like that. And you know, I guess one, I guess the first lesson there was, and this is a lesson that that's carried forward. Is it, it's not always, it's not always the the decks sometimes it's the mistakes that the pilots might make and so you really mm-hmm. can't draw conclusions around how a matchup might go because you play a certain matchup certain ways for a certain period of time mm-hmm. 
So I, I think that that matchup looked better on paper because the weekend went well than it actually was in post-testing. And what right. wound up happening was that I just needed an answer to, at the time, the, the main aggro deck was Insecticons. Um, so a recurring you know, theme. I just, <laughs> yeah. So I just needed a, I just needed a, a way to minimize the number of attacks that were being placed on, on Optimus. And so the three wide control strategy was born versus the two tall typical one other people have been playing. So the reason I, and we'll probably get into it more as, as we go on with the year, I, I was calling attention to the the genesis of the the spheres theory because it kind of that premise sums up all of the things that I was rambling about a few minutes ago. Specifically, that as we have all grown with the game, and as the game has grown itself, we've naturally uncovered these truths about how those relationships between different matchups are, and we've covered it multiple times already in speaking about spheres. But I think this was one of the first rudimentary sounds insulting, but one of the, the base level axiomatic things that needed to be discovered, like you said, it, it, you can't just go from A to Q. You have to take the interim steps. I mean, I guess you might be able to jump a few, but I don't think we arrive where we are in January of 2020 with the understanding we have of the game without somebody coming up with this deck or something similar first. Yeah, I think the basic thing is basically it was the use of one main character and multiple support characters mm. was really what the issue was instead of you needing to have like multiple beaters type of situation. Right. Yeah. Which definitely was, it, it seems weird looking back on it now that, well, how did we not know that you can make a, a hindsight 2020 joke at this point if you want Scott, but I'm going to leave it out. <laughs> um, it's one of those things that, as I look back on it, it feels so self-evident. But obviously, we had only had the cards, like we talked about, for a few months trying to orchestrate everything. But this is where it all kind of sort of be began. Yeah, um, I, I think like a lot of the weakness of playing a too tall deck just didn't wasn't evident until you were able to get because how do I explain it? Like. A lot of other decks weren't able to necessarily put on the damage potential. Like, the only other aggro decks at the time were, like... Dinobots. And cars and things like that. Yeah, yeah, and they weren't necessarily able to put the type of damage numbers out there without the ability to play an action upgrade. So giving them the extra attacker that wasn't getting the benefit of extra cards being played on them was almost irrelevant. Um, like, if a... You know... If a if a Grimlock is attacking uh, at the time, like an OPBL and a Nemesis, like does it really matter? Like he's not trampling over from one to the other, so his ability right. is kind of irrelevant. So, I mean, he, he just had one decent sized number that was getting defended for a decent sized number, and that that kind of like Insecticons were able to get around that by having two decent attackers, especially if they went second against right. your main character, and so that's where the that's where you had to have the answer, basically. Right. Um, so, <clears throat> yeah, I think that again, not to beat a dead horse, but this is one of those early steps that it was f finally figuring out, and it's to make it more generalized. 
it, these are the sort of things that there was an identifiable issue with the two tall primes list against bugs. Like you said, it, that was maybe not downplayed or obviously not non-existent going into packs, not EI packs, previous packs. But afterwards, the identification of that particular issue, and that's kind of the thing you can ex- extrapolate to future metagames is trying to find not a silver bullet, but find the identifiable problem and find an actionable way to address it. In this case, like you said, nullifying specific attacks, you can push enough damage because now we're understanding the relationship between the way armor and certain attacks work and not just from a strict numbers perspective. It it gives you an avenue to actually apply the learned knowledge. Yeah, and it also allowed a metagame that was only essentially two decks wide to include mm-hmm. more decks because once you had a three wide control sphere suddenly the the dinobot deck actually had play again where it pretty much had no chance of beating i mean zero chance of beating insecticons still pretty much has zero chance of beating uh wide aggro and then wasn't well positioned to take on the two tall list either so it got hated out of the the metagame in general but then suddenly when you had a, a, a much more solid answer to the wide aggro it actually opened them back up as a as a viable deck. So it actually expanded the metagame a bit. Right. Instead of it being because uh, honestly, the 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 packs on plug metagame was was two decks. For the like most was, part, yeah. I mean, there were certainly other people or lots of people playing other builds. I don't think they enjoyed much success, from what I recall. They, I mean, but any and anything else that anybody else played had clear weakness to one of those two. They just avoided playing against them. Right. So, like, it really. I mean, it really wasn't. There really wasn't much out there otherwise because they basically just had tremendous weaknesses to those two, one of those two strategies. Right. Um, so in every single one of those events, I mean, all of the events were won by one of those two decks. But honestly, like those two decks, as the weekend went on, just dominated that and pretty much dominated the wave one metagame until it was changed a little bit um, from that point forward and kind of helped create a larger metagame. And and like you said. It, when you found a better mousetrap to deal with one of one mouse, like it kind of allowed. I don't know what else rodent you wanted to say is out there, but gerbils, it to, rats. It, I don't right, know. It, it the gerbils to exist. I don't know what else you want to say. But, yeah, yeah, those don't sound very intimidating, but yeah, yeah. I get I get where you're going with it, and that is yeah. a good point, and I think we'll probably come back to that because yep. it, as a small digression. There has been, I've seen a lot of recent discussion, uh, recent at least at the time of this recording, which is the same sort of thing that comes up pretty frequently in card games is that, oh, well, the metagame is only these certain things, or no, the metagame's wide open, there's a billion options, and extremes on either end where there's only one deck, and there actually is only one deck is bad. It's also bad, at least in my opinion, when there's a thousand viable decks, you need to have a reasonable number by archetype. And we're going to get into it when we start talking about Wave 2. I'll elaborate a little bit on why it's okay for some of those things. Um, So any other thoughts before we move on to Wave 2 itself about the uh, the early parts of 2019 or any other tidbits that people may have forgotten about that they could bring forward into 2020? No, I mean, the game is still new. The game is still kind of hard to get, like, um, and... I mean, luckily we had a, a you know a, a pretty vibrant 
local scene yep. preparing ourselves for um for wave two and obviously like wave two is the first and i guess you'll get into this like the first time we had preview cards and etc so like a lot yep. changed basically with all that yeah the whole world kind of turned upside down as we moved into rise of the combiners and now for everybody out there listening especially if you maybe just started picking up the game at Origins or Gen Con, there was no official organized play at this stage. That's still a few months away. And that definitely had an influence, which we'll talk about later. But Rise of the Combiners ended up introducing, obviously, a number of new mechanics, a number of new characters, and shook a whole lot of things up. Off the top of your head, Scott, what was the what sticks in your head from Rise of the Combiners that was the most pivotal thing. Is there a singular thing? So from multiple perspectives. So from our personal perspective, that was, it was the most exciting time for us because we got to do, that was, that was the, that was the birth of the, the two hour preview shows. Oh God. Yeah. (laughs) When you said us, I wasn't sure which us you're referring to. Cause I see Dan saying Dan joined the team in January, 2019, (laughs) just saying, (laughs) um, Um, good. Like I remember, I remember the day that. Um, well, first of all, I remember we were we were about to do a show on like characters we expected to see. Yeah, yeah. In <laughs> in, in, in uh, the the second set, and uh, that day the Kotaku article came out, which showed that it was going to be combiners. Explained the um, the Enigma mechanic, the green pip, and all that, and we're just like, all right, well, I guess we're not doing that show. And then yeah, exactly. From for the next like month or two, we just had um, nonstop previews. previews. Yeah. Yeah, and I remember, I remember, um, I specifically remember because I remember my wife was out of town and the aerial bots were spoiled, I think the same day as like another, like, it was like the, the same show was like the Dinobot team, team, like the, the aerial bot team Mm -hmm. and like another one and like a bunch, I remember we did like 25 cards or something ridiculous and it wasn't even like the end of the set. Yep. And and we went for like two hours. So like, that was like (laughs) the birth of a lot of that because like, obviously we, we weren't doing a podcast on like cards pre wave one. Yeah. So I feel like that was obviously the start of like all the speculation and all the, the pre like trying to make decks ahead of time, which we've already talked about. doesn't always work. And <laughs> yeah, there, know, like, there are a few challenges with that. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, that, from a, from a preset perspective, that was the birth of all that. Um, and then from a gameplay perspective, obviously the game just like completely changed on its head when you doubled the card pool oh, and introduced, introduced this like com- like two completely different like mechanics that the game had not operated on before in like the green pip aspect as well as like obviously the combiner aspect. Yeah. One thing that it, it's funny because in it really happened in the, the Siege 1 previews that you said something that called back to us doing or the previews are talking about the, the reveals in rise of the combiners and that. So, and I, I don't remember exactly the way you put it, but in when we were doing the siege previews, you had said something to the effect of, Oh, don't downplay this particular thing, mechanic card, whatever we were talking about, because it's similar to how we were, or I was evaluating combiners back in the rise of the combiner stuff, where it was, there was a lot of uncertainty going in because of, well, like you said, it turned the whole thing upside down. And I think one of the one of my key takeaways from doing the preview shows and trying to prep for these shows and think of all these fifty million potential possibilities is 
kind of just go with it to begin with, because exactly what you said, until we have the context, the full set, it's tough to evaluate anyway. And now that we have multiple expansions from the Wizards team, we've seen that they clearly are going to invest in some of these mechanics. And it is reasonable to believe that in each of these sets, whatever the marquee mechanic is, is going to become a thing. Sort of. Yeah, I agree. I agree on that aspect. The, 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 I think the big thing there is um, when we had first talked to Drew and probably, I think, probably the second time we had talked to him, he had said mm-hmm. something around like how star costs are not like a cost that they look at. Like a cost to play a card is not a star cost. It's just a, co- a cost to actually build your deck. Yeah. So it doesn't actually mean anything once the deck is actually presented and you're starting to play. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where the bridge between... Um, wave one rise of the combiners really came into play because we were like oh well this five star doesn't compare to the five stars we already have in the game but it doesn't actually matter when you're playing a full team of them and right. you're playing things in a certain order and like the sum of the parts it really, so to speak it, yeah, it, doesn't, it doesn't even matter if this character gets killed like you know because ultimately they're just going to form a limb of a bigger thing later like you know like right it doesn't and it, it, doesn't, it doesn't even really matter um how good they are and some of them have obviously seen play on their own but in general oh, like, that, that didn't matter quote unquote right um and like i think one thing is sort of however and, th- and this this calls back to magic also and and i i, I guess i should have thought of this uh, i hadn't played magic and so on then i hadn't really thought about it this way but a lot of times in magic for example like they'll they'll have a keyword and this happened a lot when i was playing like you know 10 15 years ago actually more than that like 15 20 years ago but <laughs> Um, it's not would, quite at the point where it's longer since you last played since like the life of the game or some weird relationship like that. Maybe it is. It's 25 <laughs> years that the game has been out. So, yeah. um, but anyway, <laughs> so, probably, so I'd say like 15 years ago, like, like a keyword would come out and really only one card would actually have that keyword in the end. And it ever really matter. That like, as far as a playable card, you mean like yeah, only one of them was relevant? Non-limited, like outside, like in constructed, for example. So yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So you had like this key, like certain keywords obviously were a different story, but there were certain keywords and you're like, uh, yeah, this is the only card that actually has this keyword. So I have to remember what it does just to interact with this one card. Like you could just print this entire text box just on this card and it wouldn't matter. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, I think that's kind of what else we learned during rise of the combiners. Like, to be honest with you, like we tried different combiner teams and we still continue to try different combiner teams, but let's be honest, only one of them really matters um, yeah. in the end. So like, does the does that mean the mechanic suffers? Like, not really. Like, I, I think the mechanic still is out there, and I think I think if 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 there is help printed in sets that like call back to old sets, like in some oh, way, shape, or form, we're going to get those. I'm confident we'll. Get, I mean, we've seen it with the tribes. I'm sure we'll get yeah. those legacy cards that go. Oh yeah, you remember the Predacons? You remember the Stunticons? Or it seems like all the Decepticon combiners kind of got the short end, but. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> They, yeah, I, I get where you're going with it. And I think that I agree with you because that's where I was trying to, to take my point about you have to respect the mechanic because there will be, we've now seen when it, and not to get ahead, but the combiners, the battle masters, the, the micro masters, once they got their whole thing, like these, these themes ended up being a thing in some capacity. Now it isn't every single one of them, but there, it's not just wizards throwing cards out there and be like, hey, here's a lot of new cards with new card text. 
some of them are going to be competitively relevant. Yeah, but it doesn't have to be all of them is the point. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Although, to be fair, like, the combiners, I mean, yes, everybody was experimenting and it was still early, but, like, some of them seem like they could almost get there outside of the aerial bots, at least for a little while. I mean, I remember you and I both played Predacons one time at an event at the same time, and, like, I I think, I think what I most enjoyed about playing that, and I think I wound up, like, I I didn't make the elimination rounds by, like, one match, I remember, but, like, Mm -hmm. what I enjoyed about it was each team had their own way of actually playing the game out. Like, you know, a certain turn sequence and a certain, the decks didn't play out the same exact way. And like, you were able to, that's a very good point. So, yeah, it, it definitely was a, so taking a step back from the, the competitive piece and just from a, a game perspective, they definitely did offer. It's like, okay, here's a deck. Like, you know, it's one of those, I think they call them, the Wizards team was calling them signpost builds. It's like, all right, well, you, you play all five Predacons. They seem to lend themselves to orange or whatever. But it did have, like, figuring out that puzzle was an interesting toy kind of thing. Mm-hmm. You know, like, mm-hmm. it, it was an, an enjoyable experience of, okay, maybe they didn't work out and we're not playing Predacons at the Energon Invitational, but it's it was worthwhile from just a general enjoyment perspective and also learning about the game because i think there was interesting information that similar to how three wide blue these wider orange it helped to reinforce that idea of like the bugs to dinobots relationship or wider orange to bugs to whatever relationship yeah mm-hmm. so is, is there anything else that stands out to you from wave two other than being our first expansion set yeah, I mean, green completely changed the game. So you basically yep. extended your hand size and also eliminated the. Um, like, it didn't matter what cards you were playing in your deck as much because, you know, like a bad double pip handheld blaster or an improvised shield is now a live card. Right, just became <clears throat> a card you pitched to get something that was. I mean, typically, I mean, those cards still remain quote underpowered, but they're not really because they're always available. So your right, your combat step became a became an extension of your hand, and mm. there's been no substitution for it at all. Just 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 um, expansion upon it as the sets went on. Absolutely, um, for, for a power almost to the point where it's like a card has to be really good if it's not green because you because it winds up that most of the cards on the field. Mm -hmm. actually are green a lot of times yeah it's something that we may talk about in our 2020 preview sort of uh that the wizard team has said in multiple interviews with us with uh, with other content creators and then just in general and things that they produce that so for example the daring escape deck was intended so that they have another axis to operate on that it's not just make more orange more orange or make blue more blue sort of thing uh and i think greens are are in that weird space where it's for exactly the reason that you said you have to now reevaluate all the cards of trading that consistency and power level and right now most of the greens are good enough i'm very curious to see moving forward whether how many more solid green effects we're going to see or how unique can they get before it's okay 20 cards in my deck have green pips i will always have exactly what i want all the time 
Yeah, I mean, I still think a lot of your plays will wind up being that regardless. So, yeah, I agree. Yeah. So is this the section where you want to bring up press the advantage or you want to save it for later? <laughs> no, we can save it for later. <laughs> okay. Uh, the Just because it, you know, it was in the set, so it seemed appropriate. Yep. But yeah, we can Fair. we can save that for a little bit later. Um, yeah, I think Rise did a lot for the game. One thing that I wanted to... This was right around the time when I started to realize... And it, this is what I was alluding to earlier, even though the article itself didn't come out until the summer, I think, where I personally took a step back and was trying to evaluate how I was interacting with the game. So as a huge Transformers fan, not that you're not Scott or anybody else isn't, it's just, uh-huh. <clears throat> I was, a, and am still, I mean, I've been sitting here the whole time that we've been talking, playing with some of the toys I got for Christmas. Um, but <laughs> it's, the the problem that I ran into is I had to take a step back from a a licensed game from the point of I needed to treat the game as the game when I was coming at it from the competitive standpoint and not just, no, there's a way that I can make Constructicons work. There's a way that I can make Blue Predacons work. There's a, like trying to square peg round hole it, but except it's like the square peg is 38 inches and the, the round holes, a tiny screw. Like it's just not happening. Um, and it was a weird epiphany to realize, okay, it's still, and this is again, something that I've seen on various social media. It's fine to be competitive. It's fine to be casual. You can do both. Obviously it gets difficult because just time constraints, but there's fun to be had in both. It's not a, I play casual, therefore I'm having fun, or I'm playing competitive, therefore nothing is fun. Like, that's not how it works. And it's okay that your favorite character isn't necessarily the tier one character, which again, it, it, it seems so obvious and seems like such a silly statement, but it's one of those things that, I mean, I wrote a whole article on it because it was just, it was one of those I woke up one day and said, well, yeah, this is how it works, which... Again, probably may sound silly to you, Scott. I know you typically come at things from the competitive end of it right away. So I don't know if you ever encountered that or struggled with it at all. Years ago in other games, but not here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because uh, there's just not not enough days in the year or in the format to... Yeah, you guys were saying something like that on the Alpha Cast. Yeah, you you have to you have to consciously go into an event saying I'm going to be playing with the with the expectation that I'm basically playtesting while I'm sitting here. Mm-hmm. And I mean, we like I feel like we did that. For example, like when we both played Predacon one of them, yeah, and it was fun and it was it was memorable. Um, but like that's because we can only count the number of events that we can actually go to and play competitively on our, on our hands and toes even for an entire year. So at that point, like that's the issue is like when you're only playing in tournaments because of, you know, real life doesn't allow you to go out on a Tuesday night or something like to to play locally, or we just can't get together to play test because quote, there was no reason to. And I guess that's probably the next step of this year. Mm -hmm. Um, I just feel like you you have to consciously make a decision that you're going to be playing what you consider to either be an underpowered deck to test it or just something that you 
you're going to be facing like live fire firing squads because chances are for a lot of other people this they may literally just not have another event for another month and it's like if i want to i'm not just going to show up with they might not have the same attitude as you do and they may be playing more competitive level decks and so like you're going to be under that live fire all the time so you have to be prepared for it so absolutely and it, it comes down to and that was the evaluation i had to do myself was just can you separate those two? Are you okay with separating those two where it's, well, this is my favorite Transformer. I'm going to play a Spinister deck come hell or high water. Or are you going to say, no, I want to enjoy playing the game and I'm going to a competitive event. I don't want to just get my teeth knocked in. So you have to make that evaluation yourself. But yeah. uh, like I said, it was that was the epiphany that I had around the time where I was struggling myself with trying to figure out where I wanted to go with the game sort of thing. So, yep. <clears throat> um, but moving from there, I don't think... And then it, the decision was made for you because... Mm, yeah, I was about to say, it segues <laughs> right into it. I'm like, oh, so we're, we're having real, quote-unquote, real tournaments now. Uh, we got our official announced organized play, and that was... I distinctly recall, because I was talking to, to Scott... Offline, obviously, we didn't write the article or do recording for for that discussion. And he messages me, and I think I was at work or something. He's like, "Oh, so you all in again?" And I'm like, "Well, yeah, I think so," because <laughs> uh, it was I was really excited because it really did give me the outlet that I think I needed on that competitive side. Like it was it was fine to say, "Oh yeah, I'll I'll play for reals," quote unquote, and try and ignore the the desire to play these weird decks play the the good ones but i didn't have the outlet for it really i mean like you said we were blessed with having a a very strong local community but this really gave you a target to aim for um <clears throat> aside from the obvious did what stood out to you about the organized play announcement like we, i mean this felt like something that we knew was coming and at the time a lot of people i guess were doubting that it was coming in retrospect it felt like that Oh, I, I doubted it was coming. Um, I think. Oh, you did. Yeah, to that, especially. To, I mean, well, whatever. I mean, I, I, I only doubted it. I guess I didn't doubt it on the day of, but I doubted it was coming that soon and that large. Um, the I the guess. size, I think, is is something that I didn't expect. I certainly expected like the F and M approach. Yes, yes, and we talked about that. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think the issue for me was. I guess the size of it is what really shocked me, but at the same time, like the TCG world is not the world that I used to know. Um, I, I feel like the TCG world has split itself into the, I'm going to make a bunch of prizes and then I'm going to create a game. If that makes any sense. Well, that's like, your, your have, big I, marketing I wanna... push kind of thing, I guess. And it's more important than the game itself and the quality of the game. And a lot of people are willing to go that route. Yes. Um, especially on the non-licensed side. Well, um, I but mean... Also, it, but also on the licensed side as well. Oh, yeah. Um, for certain games. Absolutely. Also. Yeah. Um, but from there... So... When they didn't go that route to start the game... Um, because, I guess... It's wizards, and they don't need to. Um, <laughs> there is something to be said for that, yeah. 
they know how to do this well. Um, I just didn't expect. I I've never. I've only seen the. We're going to start it, and we're going to let the community build itself, and we're not going to push the OP side or the like. What what I just mentioned, like the we're basically going to have a tournament circuit and chick in the door, I, all fuck, all guns blazing. <laughs> like we'll make a game next. Like yeah. like some of the games that you've played, I think lean themselves more on that side for example yeah i've definitely Um, played some and other ones had weird circumstances where they tried to i don't want to say salvage the everything but there were it was definitely a hey throw money at it sort of thing or throw prizes at it and cross our fingers and yeah once we get past this hump we'll we'll be fine in those other games here it didn't seem to play out that way at all Right, like the game was allowed to survive on its own before you, before it was only surviving because of the prizes. Oh boy, that was weird. I I hope everybody understands what Scott just said, because I can kind of understand it, but it came out really funny. (laughs) You still with us, Scott? Yeah, I'm here. Okay, so I I mostly got what you're saying. <laughs> oh, um, it ba- no, it uh, Wi-Fi better. <laughs> yeah, if I heard what you said correctly, it was basically that the game was allowed to to thrive and flourish on its own of its own volition without the support, and then it came in to supplement it, as opposed to the scenario you were describing earlier, where it's like, well, here's this, here's all this stuff. Oh yeah, and there's a game attached. Right. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, it and oh, good. So, no, no, no. I mean, like, I, I just feel like, I, I, I guess from a licensing perspective, like they were confident in how the game was going and all the metrics and everything like that. But what impressed me was what came in was an organized play prize structure that was equal to those games that that's what they do it for. Right. Which so like oh, god, it was amazing. Yeah, it to oh, me so- at the time, and I think we both said it or we we certainly agreed with each other that it it definitely felt like a vote of confidence and this kind of goes back to what we had said earlier about as we're learning about the game and wizards is learning about the community we're both both parties are learning about each other as far as what the expectations are where the game should go what they think and this definitely felt like a humongous boost and still does that wizards said, yeah, the game's doing great. We didn't need it at the beginning. We want to help it continue to grow, and it's it's a catalyst, not the the foundation. So it, it continues to help the population grow, but to your point earlier, it's not a shackle attached to it. It's just something helping you get up or move yeah, up. Yeah, and this could be this could be a topic on its own, but like, I'll just throw out there some numbers. Like I, I've heard, I, I would venture to guess that the competitive tournament player buys four times the amount of product that the casual fan buys. So that yes, like you, you obviously this game has a lot of casual fans, and a lot of collectors, mm. but I still believe that the, the, the tournament player will always outspend the... On an individual basis, I think that's a reasonable thing. I know in the past, now this goes back to my magic days, but the the assumption was always that the... 
and when I say casual, in my head, I always justified it as, yes, people that are literally playing on their kitchen table, as well mm-hmm. as people that are playing at smaller local things, but not necessarily going to travel. That's where the cutoff from, in my head, becomes, now you're a competitive player. Only from, not that you aren't cutthroat, I guess, but it it's, or that you're not a good player. It's just from the perspective of, it's almost the Walmart approach of those people that I'm defining as casual, there's way more of them. So they make up for the smaller amount of purchases in bulk, I guess. And again, like you said, there's, as far as I know, there's no public metric to, to judge that by. Uh, I think the only metric they could possibly have is like where the sales are coming from and when the sales occur. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would guess that it's been successful from that perspective. So, yeah, I mean, given, the organized play push, I, there's no reason to doubt that. No, I mean, organized play is ultimately a marketing tool. Like, Absolutely. To be honest. I mean, and ultimately, that, all yeah. that matters is how they're selling the product. So, yep. So, you know, let me ask you this because there was a, a point that you had brought up way back when, I think exactly when this was announced and we did a show on it, that you had felt, and if I'm misquoting you, feel free to correct me, that you had felt that organized play, especially as time wore on, would have a significant and heavy impact on local scenes so that people would say, Hey, I heard about this big tournament at PAX Unplugged. I heard about this thing at Origins. I heard about this thing at Gen Con or these third-party circuits like we're seeing with PPG that people would move and migrate from, I'm just going to play random hodgepodge of stuff. And now they actively want to streamline it, learn the game better do you feel that has borne out? Do you think it's, I mean, I know the answers to these questions, but do you, do you think it's been a positive effect? How do you, what are your thoughts on it looking back? I mean, I think it's borne out and I think it's, <coughs> it's been positive for the game in, in general. I think it comes down to again, and all I've ever said that it comes down to is the same thing I said earlier. There's a limited number of days in a year. There's a limited number of events you're going to play in. There's a limited number of time. There's a limited amount of time that you're going to be able to spend playing the game, physically playing the game. Yep. So that if your option is playing 40-star decks this week or preparing for an event that's coming up with my one chance of qualifying or else I'm not going to be able to make this trip and not going to be able to play in the, quote, world championship. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think if you pulled the 20 players that you would get, you would get a much heavier on the side of, no, I need this time to practice. Like, if these people have unlimited time on their hands, it might be a different story, but I just don't think that that's the way it works. So, I would agree with you. Cause I've definitely had really, that thought grow, go through my head. Yeah. It's really just a time thing. It's not a, it's not a, again, it's not a, it's not a decision of playing one way or the other. It's just that mm-hmm. you can only play so many different times of the week of the month of whatever. Um, and it's perfectly fine not to always adhere to those, especially as the format grows. But like as a format starts or or whatever, I think you should you should heavily see that 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 influences it. Right. Um, in my opinion, again, in a positive way. Um, I would say the only negative to it, to be honest with you, is like I I feel like people because of when some of the events and we'll get into this like not origins non origins withstanding like the other two major events of Gen Con mm-hmm. and Energon Invitational falling at the beginning of a format that people sometimes feel like the format has, quote, been solved when there's obviously no way that's 
could be the case. Absolutely. There's there's um, definitely skewing, so. and we talked about that before, That, and we'll get into it as we talk about the events themselves, but things have felt skewed as a result of, or a direct result of when those big events are placed. Uh, yep. And a lot of that is intentional. And speaking with the, the Wizards team, they've mentioned before that they like that, you know, it showcases creativity among deck building, among other things. And that's certainly great, but it does have some of these other downstream effects as well. I agree with you that there definitely is a little bit of maybe more than a little amount of chicken littling about some of these things. Yeah, I think a lot of that brings in a misconception of a lot of competitive-based phrasing, like what is a metagame, what is... Mm. Like, like what if it's the first time you've played this deck that somebody else has played are you really quote net decking like or is it like if it's the only opportunity you have to pick up this deck and play it like is that a bad thing like maybe you just want to shortcut maybe you didn't have time to sit around for hours and hours and build this We've, so you just want to play this deck that somebody else played we definitely know? had a I was participating in a large local discussion or large it was like five or six people that I distinctly recall <clears throat> the the discussion happening, I don't remember if it was in the end of 2018 or beginning of 2019, but it basically amounted to where do the does that, the net decking piece and people playing competitive stuff at local events and things along those lines come in and is it a problem? And my point, or the, the only, I guess, salient addition to the conversation that I had was if your favorite character is Optimus Prime, and you open up Battlefield Legend, and then you go online and say, well, what's the best Battlefield Legend, you know, whether we're talking at the beginning of 2019 or whenever, what's the best Optimus Prime build I can make? I don't see any shame in somebody showing up with three wide at the beginning of 2019, or three wide around Origins, or Galaxy Prime at the end of the year, or any of those things, because that's the deck you want to play. And at the end of the day, you're supposed to be playing a game you enjoy. Why... Are you letting somebody else dictate to you what to play if you're quote unquote net decking? That seems weird to me, but I, I don't know. I think it also, I, it also, <coughs> I don't know how to say it, but like it, it downplays the play skill. Absolutely. But at, the, but at the same time, also, I guess they're trying to say it's irrelevant, which isn't true. Like, the game, the game is definitely, and, and you'll find this throughout the discussion. Like the game has become so much more complicated and so much more decision based. Yeah, that like that's just not possible, and that's well, just not a correct statement. So absolutely, and it's one of those things that it, there are different ways to come at the game. They, clearly, there are people who are better deck builders than others. There are clearly people who are better players than others. Some people are able to do both. Some people can do neither. I'm probably in that category, but, <laughs> um, I don't think so, but, okay. but my, my point is, is like, it, and we, this is a whole nother show about net decking, but yeah. my, the last yep. thing I'll, I'll throw out there is there is no reason to ever feel bad about picking up someone else's deck, let alone doing well with it or enjoying it or both. Because one of the things that you have to learn about card games is that guess what? All of these decks existed in R and D at one point. Every one of those guys on the team probably had one of these decks and these cards were put there. It's us figuring out the puzzle. These decks were going to be discovered just because you weren't the first person doesn't mean that it's off limits. 
Yeah, I agree. So, uh, anything else for organized play before we keep moving on to Origins? Well, it'll form the basis for the rest of the conversation, so no, we'll obviously yeah. continue to talk about it. So, Origins was, although we officially got organized play prior to it, uh, <clears throat> and we... Two weeks prior to it? Yeah. It, that's why I said officially we got it. It was close. Um, three weeks, I think. Three weeks, I think. It, it did, uh, clearly didn't leave a whole lot of time to experiment with it, to learn the ins and outs of it. Origins definitely was a, a learning experience for, well, everybody. Uh, from yes. the tournament structure to a lot of people just Side. learning how to play in tournaments, what sideboards were, blah, blah, blah. Like, the list goes on and on. Um, so let me kick it to you, Scott, for specifically for origins or like you said with feeding in from organized play what's the takeaway lesson from all of this that people can apply going forward um i think for origins it was completely different than the other two animals because again it was end of a metagame so i think i think the big thing of walking into origins was a complete understanding of the format was very important right um of the known format um, because cyboarding was introduced at Origins, um, you know, obviously we did very well at the event, and we had a transformational sideboard, which I, I guess seems more tra- it seemed more transformational at the time, but now seems to be the the commonplace of mm. you know one one larger bot replacing two smaller ones. Um, that whole game plan was created there because it was the first time we had sideboards and really was was able to you were able to change the ability to how your deck functioned in a known metagame given like weakness of one type of deck versus another and that's really where mm. the three wide prime becoming too tall against what was in my opinion the best deck in the format of aerial bot suddenly becoming a liability against the, the too tall version right so to the point of sideboards and this was an idle thought that I've had. It it seems like a lot of the the spheres interaction kind of was was there, and that the idea of sideboards was always going to exist at some stage. It, at least looking back on it, clearly there was no real predicting it way back when. I mean, I know myself as well as a lot of other people speculated that if we got sideboards, it could be this, but there was no way to to really tell. Are sideboards the pivotal moment? Do you feel that this kind of was the last nail in the coffin for certain spheres? I'm thinking like those narrower, taller decks, because now it's you always want to be wider, become those in the, the matchups. How do you... There's a whole lot of things we could say about sideboards, but what are the the standout points? Yeah, I mean, I I, I agree there. I, I don't think there's a reason to start out like taller than you have to. Um, so that's a good point. Uh, like, there's no need to be too tall off the bat, in my opinion. Mm. Um, I think you're just leaving yourself open to certain weaknesses that you may not be open to. Otherwise, and I think even as recent as Andrew John Invitational, you've seen uh, people able to win matches going to too tall, like even in the best of five, winning the last three matches or last three games to win the match going too tall instead of being three wide. So I think clearly that's been borne out. Um, Just the, the organized nature of having three best of three instead of one game was big considering the 
the major event of PAX Unplugged before that was best of one. So we really had no yes. definition of what that was. Either. That's actually a good point. I totally forgot about that. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, like formalizing that is the, the format and 50 minute rounds was big also. Yep. Um, but for me, Origins was really about solving a known metagame and using at the time the, the, the new rules to the advantage of the deck builder as opposed to the new cards. Um, yeah, because the cards that already existed for so long. The Constructicon set really didn't do much. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, to be fair, so, the introduction of sideboards in some ways opened up the card pool. I mean, not yeah, literally yeah, as in new cards, but yeah, it, to your point, it's the, the extra required deck slots obviously need to be filled and it opened up new strategies. It was, it, from some perspectives, you could. It, it's almost reinventing the game and yeah. the way you interact with it because of these different strategies that are now viable or that you can try and be super linear game one and then switch gears or switch tracks in game two and three. It's, it, it, it feels so appropriate that transformational boards are in this game. And that it seems to now be the standard. I yeah, I think cyborgs remain the most untapped potential of the game because I think again, as as one of the earlier points, because a lot of times we're operating in an unknown metagame. And I mean, luckily now there's <laughs> we're going to have more events where it's a known metagame. If you go back and watch our video that on our cyborg video before the top thirty two of Origins, we basically said in this matchup, I'm going to do this. In that matchup, I'm going to do that. And you that's really hard to do when you don't know what matchups you're going to face. And you're like, well, if I yeah. face this bold deck, I'm going to do this. If I face this, I'm going to do this. Like I played the other day in a tournament, and my sideboard was awful. Because I was like, well, I guess I'll bring these in against other control decks, and I guess I'll bring these in against <laughs> whatever. I'm already good against aggro, so I don't need that. It's like, and I went to go sideboard, and it's like, uh... Where am I going to find eight cards to take out? Like, I built this yeah. sideboard against other control decks, and it's like, I can't sideboard out this many cards. Like, right. it doesn't work. Yeah, that so phrase, me, I guess, at the beginning, <laughs> kind of yeah. belied where it was going. Yeah. So, but if that was the reason, is like, I would, at times, I'm like, I, I can't, I like, these cards are clearly better than other ones, but like, I, I just can't side out all these cards. Like, it doesn't, yeah. you know, and maybe it was, maybe it, a lot of it was the deck I was playing, but like, at the same time, like it just opened up my eyes to like, no, I need I need to say in this mat in this type of matchup, going I don't need these cards, so I need this many answers to improve my deck, and just try to go from there. And I, I feel like sideboarding, honestly, is 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 like still the wild west because again, absolutely, we're st- a lot of us are still have still operated in a world where the format isn't known. And a lot of times, even throughout a metagame, like, for example, during, and we'll get into this, like, during the EIQ season, especially you and I, more me than you, I was still running a different deck every week Yeah, that we played. So, like, I, I wasn't nailing down the sideboard of even the deck I was running at Gen Con. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I, I feel like that's still an unknown and untapped potential to the game that really needs to be explored further. Well, it's also, and there's some kind of like mental wall, mental block, mental hindrance, whatever you want to call it. That like, and I've seen it in other games with sideboards where 
everybody tests the snot out of game ones. Yep. Very few people test post-board when literally at least half your games are post-board. Yeah. And and it's, when you, it's one of those things that I know I do and I have to to think about it and it's, oh yeah, I should probably test this post-board because it's not going to be the same or most likely not going to be the same matchup. And it's easy to write off because you can just go, oh, well, I don't know what their board is going to be. Maybe they decided that they're going to, you know, deal with this matchup and not me. Or they're going to board in 10 cards against me and I just lose. Like, it's very easy to make excuses, but it is still something that's important to to think about as you're building things. Or like you said, it's, okay, well, this card becomes dead because of this scenario. Therefore, I need to find something to replace it with. Okay, now I have four board slots allotted for this. Right. Where do I go from there sort of thing? Yep, that's a really good point. And that's before you even start talking about characters. I mean, that it it's a very in-depth thing that we could spend a lot of time on and i'm sure we will in the future yeah i agree um so any other thoughts from from origins or as a result of origins that you think are important lessons learned no again the biggest lesson there is understanding a metagame and how Mm -hmm. to adapt to it um obviously we did very well at the event uh they made the finals um you know i was against him in the finals and then i made top 16 so which was disappointing, but uh, good enough, I guess. Yeah, it got you, got you the queue at the time. Yeah, at the time, it was important to get that queue, thinking that it would be more difficult um, as time went on, and 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 what, and it would have been, in fairness, like my whole entire season would have been much different if these larger events didn't wind up the way they did. But um, right, you know, um, I thought the. <laughs> I thought the four qualifiers to get into the top 32 was a great way of, of having a convention level event. Yeah. And I think, I think they remain a great way of, um, because I think it gave you the ability to play in as many events as you wanted to. Um, I think there's good and bad to it. Um, Of course. But, uh, I think it's a great way to spend the weekend uh, getting into that um, event. And Absolutely. I think that as time goes on, uh, I think we'll, as we get into Gen Con, um, as time went on, as more players show up to the events, it's only, it, it seems easy now looking back, like especially Origins. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, it's it was much harder at Gen Con. Like I know, for example, I know the big thing it worked for us, for example, was we helped certain players that had never even played the game qualify for Sunday. Yeah. Um or like, you know, like Palmer, for example, only could play on Friday, had to get his Friday events and then, you know, wasn't there on Saturday, still came back for Sunday. So like mm-hmm. that doesn't that's not always going to happen as more and more players show up. Yep. Um, so that was the big take away from origins but i mean it, it, it was a cool way of playing because you could change your strategies from one day to the next based on what not only what you saw but just like how it played out so if you were in one of those situations where again like you have a limited number of times to play and like oh i'm gonna play this deck that i'm comfortable with wait a minute this deck actually is terrible yeah. maybe i can switch to something else and you had that opportunity 
Makes sense. Yeah, and I do, just to reiterate a point you made earlier, I hope that we do see more of these, because I always prefer, and I didn't get to play at Origins this year, uh, I hope that we see more of these capstone events at the end of the season, as opposed to, we just got to set, everybody rush and try to figure it out. Uh, Because you get that chance to evolve through the meta and then come up with those cool sideboard options or this diamond in the rough build, that sort of thing, as opposed to, well, and it doesn't boil down to just this, but like, what are the most obviously powerful cards? Get them to work. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, it provides a, it, it's not necessarily a better, worse scenario. It's just a different experience, similar to like limited is different than constructed playing at the beginning of it. When a set releases and playing at the end of when a set releases, they're, they're generally two different animals. As always, folks, we went long, but this time we have a legitimate excuse considering we're talking about an entire year and not just, you know, stretching a single event to like four hours. But we're going to close up shop for this one. Stay tuned for the second half. As always, thank you for listening. Thank you for watching. And please tune in next time for more Tech Talk.